supporting. And I really want you to be encouraged in these days about what God is doing. We've said on many occasions that, um, that, that planting and pioneering a new church takes time. And there's ups and downs with that. There are people that uh, are going to be with us and four weeks later they've gone. And, uh, you know, and all of the challenges of leading. And uh, when, we, when we repurposed and planted again, starting at Field Mill those years ago, um, we realized that we'd got a, a challenge on. And we, we have absolutely loved the journey, even sometimes when it's not always been easy. And I just sense that God is beginning to bring uh, some of the dots together so that the picture becomes even fuller. And you've heard, you ought to be very encouraged by that tonight because God's speaking to people's hearts and they're responding. You need to pray for them. Uh, we've got this event uh, later in the, the late summer, which we're sponsoring, um, which will have Arena's name all over it. Um, there's uh, Mark Hurd leading again the uh, Children's Week um, at, up at the school. And Mark will be with us in two or three weeks', weeks time just to share about that again, the Lighthouse Project. A couple of hundred kids there last year, and they're believing for more. So things are happening. Uh, we've got the park event in July, all in Mansfields. And uh, we want you just to be in faith because we're continually going for people that don't yet know Jesus. We're continually putting it out there for people that haven't got a spiritual home to find one. And we're believing that God's going to do some great things. I'm, I'm really proud to be part of a church that wants to start sowing to a young generation. Um, because uh, they become the church of today, but they become the future of tomorrow. And uh, we're really believing that God's going to do that. I keep coming across stories of people uh, that connected with youth ministries and uh, their lives were changed forever. And so never underestimate. And thanks for sharing, Josh. And we're with you and the team. And we believe it's going to be great. Now, in a moment or two, I'm going to take us to John chapter 12. So if you brought a Bible and you like to follow that way, then you might want to turn to it. The words will be on the screen in a moment. But um, after last week's uh, Arena Unplugged, uh, we're going into the second half of our Blessed Life series. We've done three parts, and now we're going to finish off with the next three. And uh, just a slight recap before we move on with this message tonight. Um, But God has been encouraging us to understand the power of the blessed life. We've sought uh, to honor the teaching of Pastor Robert Morrison. There's been a couple of video clips in the initial weeks. A man that is particularly graced to speak on this subject. And you've heard some of the ways that he's responded and how God has touched him and ministered uh, to him. And we want to... We want to uh, uh, we, the major point that we want people to grasp is that the blessed life is inextricably linked to a giving life. You can't sort of be withholding of your life. You cannot not be surrendering and expect to be blessed. The greatest place to be as a Christian is surrendered. And here's the, here's the, here's the power of, of, of God's grace over us. I was speaking to somebody this morning about free will. You see, I I believe that free will is a beautiful gift from God. The first thing he gave to man was free will. He took the risk of man causing catastrophe in the earth, which he did, because his free will went against what God had set. And I believe, friends, that God gives us the gift of free will. Ultimately, God prevails. God's sovereign. I don't believe that God's sovereignty is moving people around on a chessboard. 
with, with no choice. And uh, I think that's an extreme of a, a particular viewpoint. But God is ultimately sovereign. And even sometimes when we get it wrong in free will, God's able to turn everything around and have his will and purpose. When we come to a place freshly of surrendering, of giving everything to God, we can withhold. We can give God 20% if we wish. But you'll never get to the place of the blessed life by withholding. The blessed life is inextricably linked to giving. I'm not just talking about finance. Although Pastor Morris mentions that, and we have mentioned it, of course. And it's, it's right at the heart of the message. But I'm talking about giving of ourselves to the Lord. If God can find increasingly local churches that are surrendered, I want to tell you, God's going to do great things. Uh, and God's going to do great things in our nation. Josh prayed this morning, God is doing great things in our nation. There's some amazing things that are taking place in our nation. Churches that are being planted and growing quickly. Uh, uh, situations where God is setting up fresh churches, fresh church expressions in cities and towns of our nation. And I know we only get one side of it. And I know that uh, the, 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 the national media are very quick at times to come up with, uh, you know, there's more and more people saying they don't have a religion, they don't have a faith, and all of that. But don't allow that to douse your faith. God's doing something. And God wants to do something amazing in these days. And when we're talking about the giving life, we're not talking about coercing. It's not the preacher twisting your arm, putting your arm up your back, standing at the door, glowering, trying to get you to do something that you don't want to do. That's not it. It's about us coming with our response to God and positioning ourselves deliberately in obedience to God, expecting our lives to be blessed of the Lord. Let me just remind you, as I did with some, a little bit of humor a couple of weeks ago, about the blessed life definition in the Amplified Bible. It says that the blessed, to be blessed is to be blessed and happy and enviably fortunate and spiritually prosperous. That is, in the state in which one enjoys and finds satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of outward conditions. That seems a pretty blessed life to me. And it is linked, as we've been hearing in the ministry, with our response in giving back to God. Giving of our finance, giving of our resource. If I can use the word giving of our wealth. Remember what I said about wealth? Don't run away with the idea, oh, that's for the wealthy. It's simply talking about our resource. And we talked about the heart, because out of the heart come the issues of life. We talked about the test, and then we talked about the first is God first in our giving to him? And we were reminded in that message that we are to offer unto God and also that we are to example to a following generation. You remember from Exodus, as we finish the message off, the son says to the father, Father, why, Dad, why are you giving to God? And uh, he says to the son, because we've been delivered by God's mighty hands in other words it wasn't always like this son we were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt we had to make bricks under the uh, heat of the sun the Egyptian soldiers were cruel to us Egypt of course in the scriptures is a type of bondage of captivity and uh, God brought a mighty deliverance and so when we give back to God we're reminding ourselves that we've been delivered by his 
mighty hand. Spiritually, if you're a Christian, that's what's happened to you. Because outside of Jesus, you're in Egypt, you're in bondage, you're in darkness, you're in sin. But we've been delivered by God's mighty hands. And when we give back to him, it's just an expression of our love and our uh, adoration of the Lord. And as parents, as grandparents, as uncles and aunties, as adult mature believers in the church, we can example that to people that are coming on behind, that they pick up a similar giving spirit. So let's go to John chapter 12 for a moment. And I'm going to read the first eight verses. John 12 and the first eight verses. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You can read about that in the previous chapter. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary, that's Martha's sister and Lazarus's sister too, she took a pint of pure nard, described as an expensive perfume, and poured it on the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She broke every protocol in terms of a Jewish woman in the expression of that adoration of worship unto God. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth the year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief uh, as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself uh, to what was put in. Jesus replied, leave her alone. It was only intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So let me just confirm the scene to you. A godly family from Bethany, just a few miles from Jerusalem, that had sisters Mary and Martha and brother Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, we read that Lazarus died. And it seemed as though Jesus was slow to respond. When he arrived there, the family said, Lord, if only you've been here, verse 21. And it seemed as though all was lost until Jesus, in a spirit of faith, went towards where Lazarus had been uh, uh, put in the tomb and called him out. Lazarus, come out. It's interesting in the economy of the miracles that he would you know, walk out mummified and he said to his friends when he walked out, loose him and let him go. An amazing miracle. And of course, in chapter 11, verse 25, we get one of the great I am's of the gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will never die. Now, the reality is there came a point in time, we don't want it is because the Bible doesn't tell us, where Lazarus died physically again a second time. And this time, no resurrection, no miracle. He went to eternity. But this verse in John eleven twenty five often mentioned at Easter time, but certainly shouldn't be uh, contained into Easter, speaks about something bigger than physical resurrection. 
Jesus is the resurrection of the life. And he that believes in me, he will never die. You see, before we became Christians, and if you have never become a Christian, the Bible says you are dead on the inside. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. It may be the first time you come to church, you didn't get it. People lifting hands, songs, people looking happy in church. I don't get it. The reason you didn't get it is because you were dead and they were in life. But the Spirit of God moved upon you and drew you to himself. And you responded to Jesus. Maybe it's a Sunday service. Maybe talking to a friend. Maybe over a period of time, you gradually came to a place of knowing that you'd stepped into faith. And you came alive on the inside. It's what theologians call regeneration. Or what we call being born again. Made alive on the inside. And then things begin to make sense. We're open to the word of God because we want to grow. We like to meet with other Christians because it encourages us. We want to worship God and raise holy hands. Because we realize that we've been created for worship to the living God. And things begin to find their place because we have come to life. Now, in the earth today, friends, there are incredible miracles taking place with even the dead being raised. And we rejoice at that. But the greatest miracle, I say this without qualification, the greatest miracle that could ever take place is not a healing miracle physically. It's a spiritual miracle that makes dead people on the inside with no interest in God alive, saved, changed, and ready to serve him. I love our journey of knowing God, finding freedom, discovering your purpose and making a difference. I say to people on a regular basis in Arena Church, I love what God's done in you. Love what's happened over the last two, three, four years. You came to church, you weren't a Christian, now you're serving here. Now you're... I was talking to someone this morning that was on the serving team at our, uh, at, at our food drive the other day. Great connection into the town. Wasn't a believer three or four years ago. Now finding an expression of ministry. That's what being a Christian is. And it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. So Jesus is at this party in his honor because they're basically saying, Jesus, thank you for raising our brother from the dead. Well, we throw a party, wouldn't we, if that happens? And Mary, an ordinary person, never mentioned as a leader in the scriptures, in heartfelt abandonment, poured this pint of pure nard, this expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus and then washed his feet with her hair. I want to give three things briefly tonight that will help us, by God, to dig deep into our lives and to seek to answer the question that Julie flagged up earlier. It's a rhetorical question. I'm not asking you to stand up or tell me or speak to me. I'm asking you to respond to God tonight as the word of God has sown in, am I generous? Am I generous? Because a generous life is a blessed life. They just collide. A generous life is a blessed life. So number one from the passage, generosity, it's extravagance. Notice that extravagance is not necessarily about the amount, it's about the attitude. In the Old Testament, David wanted to build a temple to the glory of God. And God says, no, you've been a man of war. You're not building it. But if you can gather the people and call a great offering and give yourself, it will enable Solomon, your son, to be a success in being the builder of the temple 
And David surrendered because God knew best. He didn't say, well, I want to do it. If I'm not doing it, we're not doing it. He surrendered to the will of God. And the Bible tells us what David gave, what David gave to the temple project. And commentators have tried to put that into modern day um, finance. And the reality is David gave millions of pounds to make the project work. Now, in Luke uh, chapter 21, verse 3, Jesus points an attention to a widow in the temple. There were people going into the temple saying, look at me, look what I'm giving. Whoa. But they weren't generous. And this lady gave two coins at the offering. And Jesus said, look at her because she's put in the offering all that she had. That's generosity. You see, it's not about amount, it's about attitude. You can have people seemingly with little of this world's wealth that are very generous and others that have got a lot, they're incredibly withholding. It's an attitude of the heart. And God's called us to be generous. Now, back to John 12, because if you read in the footnotes at the bottom of the Bible, you'll know that this pint of perfume that Jesus had poured over his feet was worth the value of 300 denarii, the currency of the Eastern culture in that day. And a denarii denoted a day's wages. If you take aside feasts and everything, the Jewish person would work about 300 days of the year. 300 denarii. The Bible says in verse 5 that it was worth a year's wages. Poured over Jesus. Well, that's extravagant. Now, I did a little research and the statisticians tell us that the average salary in the UK at the moment is around about 26,500. Some of you are saying, yeah, right, yeah. The reality is that we would have people in our church earning that and more because it's an average. Of course, it's skewed by London and the southeast and the average in the East Midlands where we live is lower. Not substantially lower, but certainly lower. But let's say 25,000 pounds poured over the feet of Jesus. That's what happened. A year's wages poured over him in generous extravagance. Amazing. And uh, it just hits on to us how incredibly generous Mary was. Now, please listen to me. I'm not saying tonight, and you may have a, an unbelieving husband, for instance, you go and say, you know that bloke at the Arena Church tonight, he says that we've got to sell up everything, we've got to give a year's wages to the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm not telling you to empty every account that you've got, although the reality is God might do that to people. And if you get the opportunity to see any of the video ministry, Pastor Morris refers to one of the elders in his church, a very wealthy entrepreneurial man who went through that experience. I was talking to somebody this morning at the end of our service at the door that was spoken to very deeply about giving a year's wages back to God. And he went on a journey and a process of being able to do that. You see, you just never, you never know what God's doing in people's lives. But what I am saying, friends, is that we need to give Everything that God wants us to give, that's surrender and that's generosity. And that reveals from Mark 6, 19, 
where our heart is because where our heart is is where our treasures are also what it does mean friends is that if we are people that genuinely want to enjoy and go deeper into the blessed life it will inevitably bring us to a place of being generous and can I suggest on occasions generous with extravagance Robert Morris defines three levels of giving in the scriptures tithes offerings and extravagant or what he calls challenging or even disturbing offerings when God digs deep and asks us to go even beyond what we've already given generosity number two generosity not only it's extravagance but also it's enemy you see the polar opposite of generosity is selfishness and the spirit of the age not talking about the church now i'm talking about the spirit of the age which is expressed in many characteristics one of them being selfishness i'm sorry i don't like the frank sinatra song i did it my way god help us i don't want to live my life doing it my way i want to do it his way i want to submit to him that's what we've been worshiping tonight i don't want to do my thing i want to do his thing and so generosity is the polar opposite of selfishness that says it's mine we've already alluded to the fact that god says particularly with regard to the tithe it's not ours it's his and he deliberately uses the language in the scriptures to say it's mine it's mine remember when your kiddies were younger they may still be we've had two little babies in church this morning one I find out was born nine weeks premature about that and doing well uh, to Michael and Emma and then one of our other great couples their little boy came to church for the first time this morning called Ezra what a great name and uh, and so as they get older you know they have the person from next door playing and uh, they start sharing the toys until they realize that they're not quite so keen to share the toys as they first thought particularly when the person they've been sharing the toys with seems to be taking a particular liking to them. And so you'll hear in the other room, mine, 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 mine. That's not very generous. And let's face it, we've all said at times, rather than trying to teach the principle of generosity, all give it them back. (laughs) Because we want a bit of peace and quiet. We have to be careful, friends, as believers, that we're not walking around saying, mine, 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 mine. Because we've not come to a place of readiness to give back to God what is his. Now, Judas Iscariot, when he saw this amazing, extravagant, generous giving, said, oh, this was worth a year's wages. And it should have been given to the poor. Now, it all seemed very plausible. And please, don't have me on the door afterwards asking the question, why did Jesus pick Judas Iscariot in the first place? He was a thief. He took money out of the offerings that were given to Jesus and ultimately he betrayed him. And he didn't even like the poor. And yet Jesus tried to draw him close. It's one of the enigmas. It's one of the paradoxes of Scripture. And uh, one day we'll know. But the reality is that Judas sought to pour cold water on the expression 
of generosity. And what it sought to do, it sought to mask his own selfishness and his own unwillingness to give unto people. And, uh, and that's why he made the, co- the comments. They seemed so p- plausible, but actually they were cynical, they were critical, and they were cutting. And he put an impure motive on something that was done for the finest of reasons. Listen carefully. If you're a generous believer, don't be surprised at times if you get criticized for it. So why would I get criticized for being generous? Because there were people, friends, that will seek to come against you, seeking to masquerade their own lack of generosity and to pour scorn on yours. We've been criticized at times as a church for giving too much money away to, to causes. Well, we do have two offerings every month and we're not going to shift from that because you couldn't put into words the blessings that people have received from the mercy offerings of Arena Church. Beyond words, money just coming at the right time, money helping with a project, money encouraging somebody that felt lonely, money going towards a building. And so it goes on. Incredible stories that have come back. But there's the challenge, the puzzle almost of the scriptures, that there are times as a generous people that we would even be criticized for it. And it even says in the scriptures that Judas wasn't bothered about the poor. He was just using it as an excuse. And you know... We can have all sorts of comments made at times. You know, the pastor drives, it, drives up in a new car. Oh. oh, we ought to be looking after the poor. Yeah, we did. And we're doing our best friends. But it masquerades at times of, I'd like a new car. You know, we have to be careful about our hearts and about what God wants us to do. The reality is, as the scriptures say, we will always have the poor amongst us. I want to tell you, the absolute commitment of the leadership of Rena Church is to continue to reach out to the poor, whether they be on the doorstep of the church or in the far-flung areas of the world. But generosity, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's enemy. Be careful that you don't use selfishness to come against the generous life as Judas did. Jesus said, leave her alone. I was reminded of that other passage in John's gospel when he talked about the woman being caught in adultery. If you think about that for a moment, it was a pretty, pretty graphic scene. And the religious people of the day says, let's stone her. She deserves, and Jesus says, I don't want you to sin anymore, but he says, leave her alone. In other words, you know, I, I want to bring forgiveness to this person. Go and sin no more. He says, Any, anybody like to cast the first stone? He, he, he drew out their hypocrisy. And similarly here, Jesus said, leave her alone. I want to encourage people tonight that have a desire in their heart to be generous. Whatever that means to you. And I'm not trying to apply it. uh, I'm not trying to apply it in in numbers to you. I'm trying to apply it in spirit to you. Wherever you are on your journey. But maybe at times you've come across the enemy of generosity. People have made some cutting remarks to you. People have misinterpreted your motives. 
People have said things. You thought, well, I'm not bothered then. I want to encourage you to keep being generous and to press through and to keep being extravagant in your giving unto God. And thirdly, generosity is endurance. The parallel passage in Mark 14, 9 said these words. Jesus speaking, truly I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she, Mary, has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years plus later, friends, on a Sunday evening in Mansfield, drawing on the example of Mary's extravagant, generous giving to God and trying to apply it into our own hearts. That is incredible. The legacy of this generous offering unto the Lord will live on until eternity comes. And I want to say to you that over the years, there have been men and women that have been so generous in their acts of giving back to God that their stories still live on. Let me just give you two or three very briefly. C.T. stood one of my missionary heroes about 150, 40, 150 years ago now. He was in the early throes of cricket. He was a professional cricketer. He came from aristocracy. Uh, his father gave him an inheritance. He could have just lived off it forever. But Jesus became the center of his life. Hear what I said earlier? But he gave it all away. In today's terms, several million pounds. He established a missions organization still uh, operating today in North London called WEC, World Evangelization uh, Crusade. And C.T. stood, and the motto is still there in the college today, said, if Jesus Christ be God and gave himself for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He was surrendered. And he left a legacy, friends, of training that still lives on today with missionaries being trained at that college to go to the ends of the earth and reach out to Jesus. What about uh, John Lang? People of my generation would remember Lang's builders, the contractors. Can you remember? They used to be all over the place, Lang's. And uh, John Lang was a Scottish entrepreneur, businessman of another era. And uh, when he died, his uh, last... His, uh, his estate was worth £349. He'd given it all away for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about Spurgeon's Home? Still a very well-respected charity today, uh, over 100 years old. But in Victorian England, down there in the Elephant and Castle, C.H. Spurgeon used to preach the gospel at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Over 5,000 people used to gather every Sunday. They planted over 60 churches in the southeast of the country. His messages used to be printed in the Times on a Monday morning. How about that? That's how good they were. I mean, I'd like to get one of mine in the chat, but, you know, but... <laughs> An incredible ministry. And as you can imagine, in those days in inner city London, they had a great passion to help boys and girls, many of them poverty-stricken, and they wanted to start a boys' home. And so he got his people to pray. They used to pray every Monday night. And when he was ministering on a Sunday, he used to have people praying right through the service in what they described as the boiler room. They got a message from somebody that wasn't even in their church. In fact, she was the widow of an Anglican vicar saying that she wanted to give a gift to start the boys' home ministry. What an answer to prayer. Pastor Smurgeon and one of the deacons said, we need to find where this lady lives and go and say thank you to her. And so they found her address, they knocked on the door, they said, 
we're from the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I'm C.H. Spurgeon. This is one of my deacons. We've been praying for a gift to help us start the boys' home. And you've sent this kind gift. We're so grateful for the £200 that you've sent us. She said, £200? I must have made a mistake. I meant £20,000. And in today's terms, friends, that was £1.2 million that she gave to start Spurgeon's home. So 100 years later, he's still living on and having a ministry into deprived areas in the inner cities of our nation. The power of generosity that lives on for generations. I'm believing, friends, there are going to be people in Arena Mansfield in this next season in which we live that are going to so be blessed in terms of giving back to God that your generosity is going to live on way beyond your time on the earth. We've said to a younger generation, even about the building here, even about what we're doing, it's more than us. You know, we're believing there's a generation that's going to come behind. We've heard a little bit about it tonight. That's going to leave this church well. That's going to develop this building and have many buildings. And they'll be able to read back in the stories. You know, say, that crazy Christian and Phil, they started off at Field Mill all those years ago. In that freezing cold building where you didn't feel like going to the toilet because, you know, you, it was so cold. But here we are, 40, 50, 60 years later, still preaching the gospel, still getting people saved. And people sowing into that. See the power of what you do when you give back to the Lord. Briefly, as I close, generosity always comes from gratitude. I've already mentioned, friends, that in Ephesians 2, the Bible describes us outside of Jesus as dead. But now we've been raised to heavenly places. Verse 10 says that we're his masterpiece, his workmanship. Workmanship doesn't really do it. It, it, Driving down the language of the New Testament, it's more masterpiece. You are special in God's eyes. He's molding you, shaping you, drawing colors over you to cause you to be his workmanship, fit for the master's use. It's amazing. And our generosity comes from that gratitude of what God has done. And generosity is giving and expecting no return. I hear about people bartering with God, bargaining with God, doing deals with God. I don't read about any of that in the Bible. All I hear about is surrender. And when we surrender, friends, we position ourselves for God to so trust us, first with the little things, but then with the great things of life, and to pour into us in outrageous ways. Because God responds to faith. God's the rewarder of those that diligently and earnestly seek after him. And our generosity can be so great, as I've already alluded to, that it leaves an amazing legacy. At Arena Church, as I close, one of our core behaviors in our newly revamped Arena Behaviors booklet is, unsurprisingly, generosity. Team, unity, passion, faith, discipleship. Here's something. We don't always get it right, but we want to increasingly position ourselves as a church to be generous. We want to do it corporately, and we believe that that works best when individuals all across the life of our church, all in the different stages of life, are increasingly responding to God with a generous heart. And so we've put some ministry outlines in that booklet, and at the end of each uh, little chapter, we've put, what does this mean? In other words, how do we respond? Let me just read again the responses of the generous life. He says that we will recognize that we are blessed by God's amazing generosity to us. And so we'll be liberated to the journey of a generous life. We will always take opportunities to give 
out rather than to hold back. We will allow generosity of heart to pervade every area and attitude of our life. We will understand, thirdly, that generosity is never determined by how much we have got, but by what we do with what we've got. You must say, I'm a student. I'm, you know, I've got no money. We understand that. I talked about the stages of life. But you've got to bring your heart to God in response to this message and say, God, how can I be generous? How can I be generous? It may be that you've come to a season of your life where, you know, your outgoings aren't as great. And uh, you've got a little bit more uh, than perhaps what you're used to. Lord, how can I be surrendered to you and express generosity in this season? I'm leaving that to God. That's not my issue. All I'm asking you tonight is to draw your heart to the word and be open to what he says. Fourthly, we will be intentionally generous. And then there's a quote from the great Methodist leader, John Wesley, by saying, we will be generous by doing all that we can, by all the means that we can, in all the ways that we can, in all the places that we can, at all the times that we can, to all the people that we can, for as long as we can. Amen. We will be generous. So the question, as I said at the beginning, is a self-answering question. Not going to ask people at the end, so how much are you going to give them? You know, it's not that sort of message. But the question tonight, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through his word to every one of us, is simply that we would take time in the journey of the blessed life to seek to answer it sincerely, and with a surrendered heart. I was speaking to a friend of mine recently, and he said, before I became a Christian, I was so selfish. Everything was mine. He said, I had nothing when I was growing up. So everything I got was mine, mine, mine. Going back. And he says, God so worked on my heart when I became a Christian to realize that he brought me to a generous place. It was a miracle for him because he was so used to thinking about himself. So generosity the extravagance of Mary's offering. Generosity, the enemy that sought to misjudge it and question it. And when it happens to us, let's keep being generous. And generosity is endurance. There are decisions that we can literally make, friends. I'm not hamming this up. I'm not speaking in exaggeration. But there are decisions that we can make as individuals in a church that will live on for generations to come let's answer the question in the affirmative yes out of a deep gratitude and that inevitably leads us to a blessed life amen let's yeah thank you